it's my very, very great pleasure to introduce Dr. Mary Graham. Dr. Mary Graham is an Associate Adjunct Professor in the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. Mary is a Kombu Mary person from the Gold Coast through her father's heritage and affiliated with the Waka Waka South Burnett through her mother's people. Mary has an extremely diverse background. She's worked across government agencies, community organisations and universities, including the Department of Community Services, Aboriginal and Islander Childcare Agency, the University of Queensland, and the Foundation for Aboriginal and Islander Research Action. Mary has worked extensively for the, found, uh, for the Foundation for Aboriginal and Islander Research Action as a native title researcher and was also a regional councillor for the former Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. Mary has been a lecturer with the University of Queensland teaching Aboriginal history, politics and comparative philosophy. She has lectured nationally on these subjects and developed and implemented Aboriginal perspectives, Aboriginal approaches to knowledge and at the post-graduation level, Aboriginal politics into university curricula. Having seen Mary speak recently at the New Economics Network um, organising conference in Brisbane, I can tell you we're in for a, a wonderful treat. I welcome Mary to speak to us today. Uh, oh, thank you very much uh, for that introduction. Um, um, and thank you very much for inviting me to present today. Um, very appreciative, and it would be that's great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'd also, first of all, like to um, acknowledge the traditional owners of this region, um, the Ngunnawal people. By by marriage, I'm kind of connected to them myself um, through a, uh, my niece, uh, who's uh, who lives down here. Which um, um, yes, I'll get in touch with her. Uh, I couldn't find a phone number. Actually, I've lost it, and so I've. But I'll get in touch with um, um, her mother-in-law. Yes. Um, so, um, and I'll start off also by saying my own mob uh, from the Yugambe language group on the Gold Coast, not just the Gold Coast, but the south southeast corner of Queensland down to the Tweed River. South of that, over the Tweed River, is the Bunjalung mob. And I'm from the Combermary mob within, within the big Yugambeh language group. There's about six or seven language groups in, within it. And um, at the moment, we're sort of dealing with the Commonwealth Games um, issues um, that you might have heard about, the Commonwealth Games, I mean, um, that's going to take place right there on the Gold Coast. Um, but one thing I'd really like to start off with is the, the actual acknowledgement of country. Um, if people could um, keep in mind that map there, keep it in the forefront of your um, thinking, um, that the acknowledgement to, of other people's land that you're in is, uh, of course, naturally very different from a straightforward welcome if I were a um, indigenous, you know, from here, I'd be doing a welcome, of course. But an acknowledgement is a bit more complic complicated. Now, not just in the sense of um, that wonderful welcome that we did have, just the, the ceremony, but it is actually more than ceremony and more than, um, you know, a good mannerly thing to do. Um, it's more than just protocol. It's actually... It comes within a general uh, area of protocols, which are like rules of engagement, like rules of engagement. This is a really old society, and the shape of it um, and the spread of it across the whole country is sort of different from the development um, or ev evolution, if you like, um, of many other cultures around the world. So the, the real depth of, it, of a, an acknowledgement is actually saying um, I am an autonomous person I come from an autonomous clan group because all clan groups are autonomous being uh, autonomous um, collectives and you're in the autonomous region of another collective 
but it goes not just to do with collectives, across collectives and groups and mobs, as we say, uh, but also Indigenous peop uh, um, individuals too. So I am an in, I'm a, a autonomous person. You are an autonomous being. Women are autonomous beings too, actually. Yeah, they don't become lower than men or anything like that, or more or less important. But the the really important rule is that my autonomy must not transgress your autonomy, and vice versa. And that's exactly the same for all the groups. So. Um, another good way of trying to understand this, uh, the complexity and the sophistication of it actually, um, is to try to um, suspend for a while um, the old anthropological, very conventional old anthropological view of Aboriginal people as um, um, primitive hunter-gatherers struggling to survive in a harsh, cruel land, full stop. Um, try and you've got to suspend that. You've got to shift it, even just one inch towards the right or something, right, left, uh, because it's anything but that. When you really find out about Aboriginal philosophy and um, worldview, there's an old German word. Well, not I don't know if it's old or not, but Weltanschauung. It's a worldview. It's, it's a philosophy of life, not an actual like Western-style philosophy. Um, you know, examining uh, the nature of things or anything like that. It's a view of life. So our Weltanschauung in, uh, includes this framework of what you could call like um, autonomous regions across the whole country. There's not, not one spare um, bit of land that, uh, that is empty land. Every part of the land is somebody's responsibility. Uh, northeast, southwest... Um, and uh, it's um, so it's you, you can look at it spatially across the land you know across the whole country and then you can look at it um, vertically so people's um, identity is embedded in the land it goes deep into the land so every different group is interdependent so in a sense if you like it's a kind of um, early form of, um, I, I don't know if people have heard this term, multipolarity. Multipolarity. There's no, in other words, there's no um, central tribal group, no central body, no overarching hierarchical dominating group that dominates all the different tribes. They are all their own boss. Um, another way of putting it is like, um, just imagine a whole country full of nothing but local governments no, no, no federal government, no Commonwealth government, no national government, no state governments, just all local governments. That's, that's actually what it's like too. And they're all interdependent. And there's always this rule about um, autonomy. And if you like, it's, um, it's like territorial integrity. So we probably invented that too, along with a whole lot of the other things. Territorial integrity. Um, so there's no idea, you know, an old saying about and as in heaven, so on earth, or something like that. So that idea also goes within the clan group too. So everyone's autonomous. However, there is um, there is order and authority. Um, a different view of what power and authority is, very different from the West and many other cultures. In many other cultures, it's a case of that power and authority is conflated. Uh, so if you have power, that gives you the authority to do whatever you like. You know, declare war, um, approve of executions, have the kind of system you want, law system, and so on and so on. But what Aboriginal people did in their governance, the old, the old governance, is they separated out um, power and authority. So authority is in the hands of what could be called a soft hierarchy, a kind of, uh, of older people, knowledgeable older people. So they have authority, they don't have power. Power is diffused throughout the group. And uh, you see this still, and it's been interfered with, of course, a lot of ways. So, so there's no hierarchy as such within the social, political, 
group. In, in the whole, um, and this is where I guess the connectivity framework comes in, um, the, it's, it starts off with the relationship with land and the ethos that underlines this uh, ordering and regulating um, system, the architecture, if you like, of a society. Um, it starts with the relationship with land. So there's only two relationships that really exist. The relationship between people and land, and then the relationship between people. And the relationship between people is always contingent on the relationship between people and land. So how you treat land should become, and for, for, these, for this old system, it did become the template for the social and political system. So not exploiting, um, not um, dominating it, not seeing it, not seeing land as um, uh, a resource only. Um, in fact, in the idea of law, L-A-W, uh, capital L-A-W, actually I, I always write it, <laughs> um, the land is the source of the law. Um, it's an actual um, notion that's deeply, deeply embedded in, in us. I asked a law professor once, look, Aboriginal people know that the land is the source of the law for us. That's what the law is. What is the source of the law for Western law? <laughs> and um, she shocked me a bit by saying, oh, well, that's easy. This is a law professor from Melbourne University, by the way. Uh, she said, well, it's uh, violence, actually. <laughs> and I was taken aback. I mean, I was more than willing to agree with that, but <laughs> um, but I was shocked too uh, a bit. And I and I thought, oh well, oh you mean the adversarial system, the adversarial system fighting over what the truth is, you know, in a courtroom and between cases and all that. She said, yes, that's part of it, um, but no, it's really violence. And she kept kept that <laughs> theme. And then I said, uh, oh you mean. Uh, individually property-owning individuals who go into competition and so on and so on, you know, starting back in Greek, way back, you know, in a long time ago. She said, yes, that's part of it too. But no, it's, uh, it's coercion. You follow the rules, and if you don't follow the rules, you just simply get in trouble. You get punished, punished in all variety of ways, from fines to actual death, execution, and so on and so on. Whereas this old system of law is a diff completely different. It, it certainly does have rules for society, like marriage rules, kinship rules, um, rules of transgressing the law, like going against the rules and you do something very bad. But the law, in this sense, is uh, t more to do with the meaning of things. Uh, meaning, and especially to do with uh, land and your relations with other tribes and, and your neighbours and so on and so on. Um, so it, it's, it's what somebody has called a full law rather than a half law. It's a law more to do with philosophy, um, spirituality, uh, the, uh, uh, the great creative narr narratives of each and every one of these, this, uh, these groups. Um, so law is a far broader thing. And I would recommend, strongly recommend... Um, Professor Irene Watson of the South Australian uh, University. Her, her book, Raw Law, it's got a longer t main title, but it's about raw law, R-A-W-L-A-W. So it's a wonderful, uh, and it's an exact, very detailed meaning of what Aboriginal law is and, and what Western law is. So um, what I usually do is give a very brief re telling of a story from uh, a creative narrative um, from, uh, from the uh, central, area, central desert area. I have permission for this too, and that's another rule of law or law. You're, you can't tell someone else's story without their permission and, and so on. Uh, but although it is a public uh, story, actually, apparently. Um, but um, so... Uh, just really, I won't go in the whole story uh, because there's multiple dimensions to it and I only know a particular dimension. But what it basically says is that um, there was nothing on Earth before. It was like a lunar scape, but there was dormant life underneath. It's never quite clear about 
what disturbs it, but something disturbs it, and these dormant life starts to emerge from this above the surface, and essentially they're all um, varying kinds of flora and fauna. They're larger than life, megafauna, you know, they're larger than life, uh, and their activities in fighting, very human-like, um, capricious sort of behaviour, they fight with each other and so on, murder one another, make love and so on. All their actions and drama create the landscape. But at the same time as all this drama is going on, this other dormant life awakens and crawls to the surface, actually. And what they are, they have to crawl because they are proto-humans. They're humans still in a fetal stage. And all this drama above has woken them up. They come above. They, because they're in a fetal stage, they can't stand up properly and do anything much. So these flora and fauna, in other words, the spirit ancestral spirits, all the, everything you see around you, uh, helps these proto-humans become fully formed human beings. It's a lovely description of them exercising their limbs, slapping their back, clearing their nose and mouth to help them breathe, marching them up and down, helping them walk and so on. So all of the different forms of life, life forms, help to finish the job of making brand new human beings. It's a wonderful sort of story, really. It's nothing to do with God. In that, in that story, God doesn't exist, and there's many, many stories like that. There's no hierarchy in a spiritual world. So no God, uh, no heaven or hell, and no paradise. They don't exist, actually. So land literally invents and creates us, and all the, uh, all the um, life forms that exist, flora and fauna, insects, everything, um, trees, grass, they help us to become fully human being. Now, what a, an, old, um, an old philosopher friend years ago, he passed on now, he did philosophy and religion studies and everything. He says it's amazing. It sounds very much, because it goes much more complex than that. He said it sounds exactly like um, as if here is this really old people. They um, found the actual scientific proof, <laughs> proof of how we got to be here. You know, no religion, nothing to do with that. Um, so come out of Earth, and then we gradually evolve into human beings. And, but he says the big difference is that uh, what we, you know, um, found, we simply made sacred. We sacralised that whole process. So can you imagine all the whole scientific thing, you know, arguments made sacred about in biology and everything like that. Not just materialist philosophy, not just, you know, what you see is what you get and so on and so on. So it's, it's a very different sort of idea. Um, about this connection. So then the, the actual philosophy comes about by uh, what, it, what actually happens happened out, out of all of that. In, and, and it's all different. The stories are different all over the whole country. Another way of looking at it, actually, is the religious way, um, by saying because they're creative narratives. It's like saying instead of having one genesis, you have, um, you know, 500 four, five hundred, six hundred genesises, and they're all different. Some of them are kind of connected, but most of them are all different because every different place has its own story because the landscape is different, you know, from the desert areas to the, uh, you know, uh, northern rainforests, big wide open desert, uh, sorry, um, plains, valleys, mountainous areas, coastal areas. So the, the land itself is different. So the creative narrative is different, so the law is different, and the people are different, with different laws, and so on and so on. So that's how it's, that's the connective kind of thing, I guess. So the philosophy that comes out of that kind of thinking um, and experiencing, over, this is over tens of thousands of years, um, is that because it invented us, we're obliged forever to look after it. It invents us, it creates us, and not only that, it keeps looking after us, of course, in the most very basic way, in all kinds of ways, but the basic way, we're walking upright, we're breathing ex oxygen, <laughs> um, you know, uh, rain, air, uh, food, shelter, 
So we're kept alive by it. So we are forever obligated to it. So we have to show this obligation all the time. So it invents us, creates us, keeps us going. We have to look after it. It doesn't really need us. It doesn't really need us. But this is the very interesting development, really. Um, so we're obliged to look after it in this the sense of the sacred, is, is, is grown, is born, and, and it, it flowers, and it's nurtured like that. So we look after it. So what comes out of it is a, um, um, a reciprocal relationship, a, reci a reciprocity. To put it in more detailed, formal ways, um, like um, Irene Watson says, it's the law of reciprocity, actually, that comes into being a law of reciprocity. So you have to look after it. We have to look after it in all kinds of ways. It doesn't need us. It doesn't need humans at all, you know. But we are obliged to it, and so we have to look after it. And the main thing is, of course, for future generations, for all kinds of reasons, but that's one of the big ones, for future generations. But also, it's to do with ethics um, and the relationalist ethos. Essentially, the relationalist ethos as opposed to a survivalist ethos. Now, I shouldn't say as opposed to because it's not, it's not a case of um, the excluded middle argument, Aristotelian argument, you know, um, either or. You know, it's not that. It is that relationalist ethos and the survivalist ethos, they overlap. You could argue um, that, oh, well, even the relationalist ethos feeds into the survivalist ethos and so on. So, so the relationalist ethos is essentially about how we really get on with each other, of working out systems, of how we, how we answer th a, a couple of very basic questions. How do we get on with each other without killing each other off, you know? Um, in the old Aboriginal sense, Thank heavens, there's no um, there's no law or rule, a law of um, having to love your neighbours. There isn't, <laughs> you, but you you can argue and fight with them and even have like have a traditional enemy relationship, but you can't invade their country. And that's been how it is. That's a rule of thumb, a rule of engagement. As it as Les has said, Uncle Les has said, you can't invade somebody else's country. You can argue with them. You can really don't like each other for a very long time for all kinds of silly reasons or, or, or good reason, but you can't invade and take over someone else's country. It's unheard of. So how do we get on with each other without killing each other? And that's one very good way. Um, the other thing is how do we get on with each other? How do we live on this place without ruining our nest, as it were? How do we do it without ruining our surroundings, the environment, because we are, you know, we've got to look after it. And then, above all, how to have, uh, sorry, what kind of um, philosophy of life should we, this new human society, what kind should it be that doesn't um, uh, alienate us from ourselves and our environment, uh, that doesn't dominate us, a philosophy that doesn't dominate us, i.e. religion or something like that, um, spirituality, yes, but not, not a religious kind of firm fundamentalist uh, religious kind of idea where, you, where people are forced to do things, you know. Um, so how to find that kind of philosophy. So those three big things, how do we work that out? And I guess Aboriginal people worked it out in a particular kind of way, um, like, like we've been saying. Um, the other way of looking at it is that it's like um, you've heard of biodomes, experiments, old experiments, 20, 30, 40 years old, I think, which failed, mainly science-driven, they failed. But in a sense, this is, this is like a natural biodome experiment. <laughs> um, so it's a great big, you know, continent, island continent. Uh, we certainly had, you know, visitors from the north, and, but they went away again. Um, but this was, in a way, an experiment uh, as to um, how, to, how would people get on? you know, to, together. And of course the easiest, uh, well it's not easy, but the simplest thing is that we've had tens of thousands of years to work it out, of course, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is pretty good. <laughs> um, so um, the main things are, 
It's no hierarchy. It's, there's a soft hierarchy. Older people are like a hierarchy, but a soft hierarchy. They're, it's a bit like a combination of um, gerontocracy and meritocracy. <laughs> That's the only way I could explain it. <laughs> but they can't tell you what to do like kings and queens, even though that was an attempt, you know, the kingship, king, king Billy and king queen this and all that. That was something that was imposed by colonisers, of course, and it wasn't real, you know. And um, uh, men and women, male and female, are in balance, not equal, but in balance. Uh, and I think that's seen as a kind of a general rule of thumb right across the country. Um, there are not many things uh, that everybody agrees with across the country. So it's not one philosophy that dominates everybody, except this idea of the relationship with land and so on. So the attributes um, of relationality, uh, empathy, ethics, an ethical system, a stewardship, a stewardship of some sort. Um, that's for spirit and human agency in the context of the relational. Uh, identity or place, place is very important and to do with identity. Now, not just a locality in land. You know, there's an old um, French saying, uh, an old French philosopher, Descartes, <laughs> talking about, I think, therefore I am, everybody, very well known. Eh? Um, Aboriginal people don't have an um, uh, idea like that, but if there was, it would be something like, I am located, therefore I am. I am located, and via your mother and father especially. You know, So place is extremely important. And place, don't think of it only as a locality in land, though. Place is sort of psych psychology too. You know, it's the psychology, uh, identity, of course. Autonomy is the other attribute. It's extremely important. It's still important today, and it comes out in varying kind of ways, not just in arguments among Aboriginal people to do with native title. It, it really came out strong there. Um, but autonomy is, um, uh, you, you know, you are your own boss. Um, your, your mob is your own boss. So you simply cannot have, for example, a leadership system, an advisory leadership system that simply talks for everybody. It is simply not accepted. And you have to keep that in mind when you're reading about Aboriginal politics or politics with the federal government, recognition, treaties, all that kind of stuff. You couldn't possibly have a treaty, one treaty. It would have to be like, you know, multiple treaties we're looking at. That's the only thing that they would accept, of course, Aboriginal people. Uh, and Sorry, the other um, attribute is balance, balance in all things. And balance isn't equality. Equality is a, something that is struck. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, sooner or later, somebody gets pissed off with that, you know, with the unfairness, ap apparent unfairness of this equality. But balance occurs in nature, and equality doesn't occur in nature. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I could be wrong. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that balance is the main thing in nature. So we sort of go with that. Sometimes arguments and things like that, um, or events, up, upset this balance, and you always try and work back towards balance. It's partly why Aboriginal women have always, might have changed now, but um, they always don't really accept the feminist arguments. Uh, not really. They, they would say, and I've heard Aboriginal women say about balance, what we want is balance back, that men and women run countries. Men and women run, you know, look after society. So you do it in, an, in this balanced sort of way. Not a, not a hierarchy, not a patriarchy. Um, so, and um, survivalism, survivalist ethos is, there's straightforward survivalism. You know, you suddenly find yourself swimming in shark-infested waters. You, the only thing on your mind is, is um, you know, being saved, <laughs> being removed from that place. Uh, you're dying of thirst in the desert. What you want is not um, a friend or a company. You want a glass of water, don't you? You know, um, but survivalist ethos is where that's what you think or a collective thinks is what life is all about. You know, it's a jungle out there. We have to arm ourselves. Um, where uh, your your you know your position, you fight like mad for your position. 
um, because a whole lot of things uh, are, um, rely on it, your family and wage and all sorts of things like that. That's where the, the, the two different forms, I suppose, of the, of the uh, survivalist ethos uh, comes into being survivalism and the survivalist ethos. If you think the world is just simply there to, you know, so that we can do whatever we like, um, well, it's a, it's a kind of a survivalist ethos that says that, you know, um, um, I will proceed uh, looking for the advantage and I don't care at whose expense or what expense, like fracking or, you know, you don't care that that happens. Whereas, um, really, it's the, the key core thing about advantage is not to do something at somebody else's advantage or uh, to, to, uh, at somebody else's um, um, towards their uh, disadvantage. You disadvantage deliberately so. You just want what you want. I want what I want, and I, uh, I want what I want, and I will have what I want at anybody and every, everything's expense. Absolutely the complete opposite of... Uh, that's a survivalist ethos. And unfortunately, um, you probably all agree and know, know all this about the savagery of capitalism um, that has led to this kind of thing and how it, uh, it's not sustainable, it won't last, it will start to eat itself, and I think it's already sort of starting to do that. Um, a lot of good economists around sort of say the same thing. Um, so connectivity with land, it, it would be wonderful. Um, I and many other Aboriginal people think that if, if uh, more people, mainstream people, um, could sort of see that, that looking after land is far more than just conservation. It's, it's the philosophy of life, actually. It's really the philosophy of life. Um, in preparation, we were talking about at that New Economy Conference, um, I and other people were talking about, look, you better start be being prepared to be poorer, the West. Start, start actively working towards being poorer, living a simpler, poorer life, actually, and not just see things as being the meaning of everything and so on. I know a lot of people already are like that. But, but as, a, as an actual social order, actually, as a political order. You know. um, the other thing I was going to say, what helps? There are a couple of things that help. Um, also is, and this is the harder, long-developed kind of idea, is that Aboriginal people have a different logic. They don't have Western Aristotelian logic, um, which is the logic of the arena, either or. Either you're a friend of America or you're an enemy. You can't sit on the fence anymore, you know? And that's the true, isn't it, what George Bush said at the time? Uh, and that's, that's pure Aristotelian logic. Um, so it's a winner-takes-all kind of logic, I suppose. So Aboriginal logic isn't like that. It's not like Chinese logic either, which is the paradoxical logic. It's very, very clever, very, very different and very clever, closer to Aboriginal logic, but it's different. Um, so paradoxical logic is the logic of um, everybody knows that sig uh, the symbol, yin and yang, and black and white, and curvy line. And so the curvy line is a flexibility between choices, as a flexibility between different arguments and so on. And a bit of black in the white and so on is really about um, accepting uh, contradictions, nuances, uncertainties, and you work that into the argument. You accept it in the argument. Western logic cannot stand uncertainties. They can't stand it. They have to have certainty. So they neaten everything out. They smooth everything out. They get rid of all the bumps and creases. <laughs> they have to have it like that. Whereas Chinese logic is very different. They just simply accept all that, and then they go with it. And um, again, that's different to Aboriginal logic. Um, it's also why um, I think the West doesn't understand uh, Chinese foreign policy or anything about how they make decisions. They would do well to sort of look at the, the logic there. It's very different. So they think the, the Chinese, I think the Western foreign policy people anyway, they think the Chinese are exactly the same as them and they're not, actually, not at all. You know? um, they have a different sort of view of a global, global view. 
Um, Aboriginal logic is different again. You have to look at that map again. And it goes something like this, um, that um, there are multiple places, even though, even though, let me say that half the languages are gone, uh, a lot of com communities, are, the, 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 the tribal group has actually disappeared, gone or whatever. Um, but the logic remains. That's the most important thing you have to keep in mind. So there are multiple places. Every place has a dreaming story, a dreaming, a narrative, a creative narrative. So there are multiple uh, dreamings across the country. And a dreaming is um, the, the uh, law for a place. So there are multiple laws, L-A-W, not L-O-R-E, L-A-W, multiple laws across the country. So there is no absolute law. And a law for a place is the truth with a capital T for a place, for multiple places. So there are multiple truths, as people just na na know from common sense. There are multiple truths. There is no absolute truth. And a truth is simply the perspective of that place, from that place. So, there are, so the equation goes something like, all perspectives are valid and reasonable. And that's exactly how Aboriginal people are. They're not they're how they talk, how they argue. They can be quite adamant, but they're not ideological. There's not ideological arguments put forward or um, fundamentalist sort of arguments. They're arguments from a particular place. And you, again, you hear this in Aboriginal politics. Um, they're talking only for their own mob. They're not talking for everybody else. If anybody kind of dares to talk for everybody else, <laughs> one, one group or one person, talking for all Aboriginal people, they get hounded very quickly. And this is right now in, in modern times. doesn't matter whether you, are, you know, live in you know, traditional areas, way up in you know, remote areas, um, where the, the law still is quite firmly in place, uh, rural areas in the middle of big capital cities, that rule, that logic is still there. It's, it's adhered to, well, it's embedded, put it that way. Um, so the other thing too, that why things won't change too, for, for, uh, uh, that is political situation won't change for a long time, is that um, Aboriginal people could just consider themselves Aboriginal people. They don't consider themselves black Australians. Uh, and that's the problem with the recognition. Uh, the whole idea of the recognition. I'm trying to squeeze everything in, <laughs> all, all aspects, uh, quickly. Um, that uh, that was seen as the um, um, how can you put it? The the pressure was on us to go with recognition, so that we would be like captured within just within the Western sort of framework, not our own framework. Because that's the one thing that you have to really definitely keep in mind that is that we and I tell my still tell my students on the you you know rare times I still give lectures uh, um, is that they um, Aboriginal people are owners and runners of country. In other words, they actually ran the country once. You know, very different to the West. Very different. It didn't come out of wars. Uh, didn't come out of battles between big tribal groups and ending up with a hierarchical kind of system. Um, it, was, it, it developed or it evolved that way. So we're owners and runners of country. We're not peasants, not peasants, not lumpen proletariat sort of on the lower level rungs of the ladder. So, and that's the only way that have to be treated, really. You have to see Aboriginal people like that. All 3% of us, as against 97%, of course. I don't know how that will work out, but that's the, that's the real kind of um, situation of, which is why so many Aboriginal people were against the recognition. It's not to say that we can't engage with each other. So the, the rejection of it, which I, I took to describing a, in the terms of that older, an old, um, you know, fable or story. Um, um, Come into my parlour, said the spider to the fly. You know, that's how I saw recognition. <laughs> come in, come in. You know, yes, we'll look after your interests. And who on earth will guarantee that? Who 
what Aboriginal person or group will ever trust government, Australian, any Australian government, no matter what party is there. Nobody will do that, not ever, you know, until there's an, this actual equal kind of thing. Here is the Australian polity and here is an Aboriginal polity and they'll engage, but on equal terms, just like what we're used to, not from an ideological point of view, but what we're used to, how we deal, dealt with each other, you see. And no invasion, nothing like an invasion. You can have traditional enemies. You can, um, yeah, you don't, you, that's a good thing. You don't have to love your, as I said, your neighbours or even your relatives for that matter. But um, thank God. <laughs> um, but, but you're, <laughs> with, uh, sometimes with great reluctance, you're, um, you're obliged to look out for them. You're obliged to look out for your neighbour and so on. And if you're going to have enemies, the best enemy to have is um, a traditional enemy, actually. It is, because that's actually a relationship. That's actually a relationship. That's not survivalist thinking. That's a relationship, a long-standing thing, you know. So you know each other. You know each other's flaws, faults, you know, all kinds of things about them. The English and the French. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, a, that's an old traditional enemy. Relationship of ever there was, you know. Um, so anyway, look, I'll leave it. Leave it there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much, Mary. That was um, absolutely wonderful and, and um, thought-provoking and, and inspiring. Um, we have a few minutes to, to have questions from the audience. Um, if you can pop your hands up and project, um, hopefully, we can, um, hopefully we can hear well. Yeah. Um, Yes, um, it is very different. Um, and a relationship, the only thing I can compare that to, it's not much of a comparison, but that people, uh, I'm not quite sure about the rest of the country, but in Queensland there were reserves, you know, like reservations, you know, reserves, where thousands of people were herded onto, actually, and they came from a whole lot of different uh, groups, um, all of them. Um, and, but they, all of them were brought up by their own particular family on these places with actually a story, <laughs> a story about a homeland somewhere where they couldn't go back to, where a lot of their people were killed and the remnants, as they say, used to say, were brought there. And it's still in place. A lot of those people, especially in Sherberg, the one I know, uh, not far from Brisbane, um, there's a sign in the local the community council which says something like 38 mobs, this is 38 tribes, you see, 38 mobs and one, oh no, sorry, 38 tribes and one mob, meaning Sherberg mob, see. But they still continue to, even though, like generationally, they haven't been gone back there, weren't allowed to, uh, all sorts of things, the sacred sites are under, under a, you know, ownership, general mainstream ownership quite often, or they're just unable for poverty reasons, you know. Um, another thing, another aspect too is that uh, uh, I, I don't know, um, uh, and I have to say up front really that my, one of my favourite writers is um, Edward Said, the Palestinian writer. He was, for myself and my good friend and colleague Lilla Watson, he was required reading in our classes for students. Um, and of course Franz Fanon, you know. the, yeah, the um, But w what... Uh, what is interesting is that, um, and again, this is this Aboriginal logic, I suppose, uh, in a way. Um, it's um, the, uh, out in the Central Desert area, but probably in other areas. The sacred, the sacred grounds. They actually three different groups overlap. They they literally overlap, like you know, like like a Venn diagram, but all all un, you know, wieldly, you know, all sort of different, not perfect shapes or anything. But, but they all, uh, um, culturally and historically, for long, forever, have an agreement about how they look after those places, actually. And I always think of uh, Israel in that, in that what's the name? I thought, what a pity if the, the, uh, the core thing isn't of looking after land, you see? Looking after the land. And that sort of does something to people, actually. And not just uh, in nice, warm, fuzzy glow kind of thing, you know, looking after the land and it's all lovely and, and so fix it up and make sure it's all right and all that kind of stuff. Because as I said, it doesn't need looking after. But I thought it was a very clever kind of psychology that blackfellas 
I say black fellas quite often. Hope you don't mind. And white fellas. How they worked it out was there was some kind of deeply felt thing that we actually don't know what ethics are. The only the only way of people taught themselves ethics is by the configuring or of a of a spirit figure. So humans created a spirit figure, basically, a god, which in turn told them, you know, it's uh, what you call a puppet sort of figure. Do you know what I mean? So that figure tells people what to sort of thing. Uh, so Murray's never had that, but they looked at it in a different way. You look after land and you build ethics through that. So it's sort of like you're learning ethics in a loop, in a back back to front way. You're learning to look after something outside of yourself, you know. So you, nobody tells you, now be a good person, be a be a virtuous person, be honest, all those sorts of things, and so on. Nobody says that. You just simply look after this thing outside of yourself, and then you know on the most basic kind of psych, psychological, psychic level, what looking after, what ethics actually are, and that that sort of has a big impact on your how you actually treat other people. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's a kind of completely different psychology. And I think Aboriginal people work that out also from, from this uh, custodial ethic. So it's, 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 it's a bit like an algorithm, actually, you know, without, um, <laughs> without machines. Um, a custodial ethic combined with that kind of logic and no belief system. You, you won't hear an elderly Aboriginal person say, I believe in the dreaming. It's nothing to do with belief. It's a way of thinking. I don't know if people are familiar with Hannah Arendt, uh, mm. thinking and writing. It's a way, a particular way of thinking, you know. So, so, so it's not a religion at all, not at all. Um, so, if if there was a um, kind of meaning of life, there isn't actually. But they wouldn't disagree with the one in. Um, they wouldn't disagree. It sounds terribly horrible, flippant thing to say, but uh, they wouldn't disagree with the one in um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, Forty-two. Hitchhiker's Guide. To the Hitchhiker's Galaxy. Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> yeah. They would. They would. They would reckon. Well, you can have any kind of meaning yeah. of life. In the meantime, look after the place. Do you know? That's all. While you're figuring that out. So we're, You know what I mean? So you. So you can literally have. You know. Five hundred or five hundred thousand different. You know philosophies of life and, and so on and so on. But the main thing is to look out for um, the land. And that, it's, it's, it's a bit like looking at, you know, telling a child to look after a pet, hoping that the pet, they will learn things. But of course, usually mother or father looks after it, <laughs> ends up looking after it. But just imagine that as a whole kind of social kind of thing. You know, you're supposed to. And nobody makes you though too. And the idea of doing it is not to be rewarded afterwards. It's got nothing to do with you doing this for altruistic or or um, virtue reasons because you're not going to be rewarded in heaven because there isn't any. You know, you're not going anywhere. Um, you're you're doing it essentially, and I know this sounds a bit of a kind of dull, I suppose, but to, in order to have a um, an efficient, stable society for a very long time. That's what it means. Have a, how to have an efficient stable society for a very long time you know you want happiness and love well forget that you know that's yeah. <laughs> that's that's for, for a whole society i'm talking about um that's that's what people have each other for you know but the but the the ordering of society has got to be efficient but with all this feeling and caring and and so on all those sorts of things though but that's not the main reason it's efficiency and all that it sounds a bit dull i know but it is like that I think we've got time for one more question, which I think Mia had over there. I just wanted to really briefly reflect as well. Also, as a Jew, to me, the story of Judaism is disconnection from place over 6,000 years. Our entire history is, yes. is being torn from place. It's the story we tell ourselves every Passover and every celebration. And somehow I think... Exactly. And, it, and it's that trauma... It's, it's the connection to the whole world and to each other linked with the trauma of being torn from place yeah. to me, which, yeah. yeah. Um, final question from Mia before we break. Well, the, the immediate thing would be looking after land, and I'm sure everybody's, you know, everybody's against fracking, 
and uh, the Dani, they're the big things, eh? you know. Um, go all out, God Almighty. You know. Although um, <laughs> we're not we're not ideologues either uh, in that sense. So I I don't think too many Aboriginal people are going to throw themselves in front of bulldozers. They'll leave that to other braver, younger, more fit souls. <laughs> We'll be there. We're, Aboriginal people will be there, of course, and, and they are, you know, in the Adani thing, you know. Um, but the philosophy is, um, it comes into all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, ways you could put it. For example, uh, talking with women, uh, uh, Aboriginal women, a group of Aboriginal women and white women, we're talking about, well, you could start straight away by having like uh, committees that are half men and half women. Do you know what I mean? Have an equal, well, I say I use the word equal, but it has to be reasonably balanced. You know, the, the very idea of having various discussion groups about some particular things where out of 12 there's 11 men and one woman or something, you know, I forget what that was, but something, you know, that just simply can't happen anymore, do you know? Cannot happen. Um, so it starts off with just basic, real practical things like that, wherever it is. And it's not a, not a big fight. Don't have it a big fight. Don't well, I would say, you know, the Murray women might say something different, but I would say don't fight with men. Just do it. <laughs> Just do these things. That's all. You know, don't don't fight for the struggle and all that kind of... I know you, I hear and read about all these horrible things. You know, the sexism. It seems to be huge and rising and even worse. It's, it is... It is patriarchy, but it's 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 hierarchy, and I get into a bit of trouble with some women about this because I think it's slightly different. You see, I don't think it's a match up like that. Um, uh, I think hierarchy would stay no matter, as we know, no matter what women are running countries. Isn't that true? You know, things go ahead in this hierarchical way, no matter who is in charge. You know, so it doesn't matter if women are in charge. Really, it's the system itself. That's a huge, huge challenge. It's like a, trying to attack um, or, or deal with Mount Everest kind of thing. And will take, you know, probably a long, long time. So, so the philosophy, um, you know, you, you can do, start doing practical things in that way to do with structures, you see. Do you, do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, the whole thing of the, the land, you know, you're looking after it and, and so on. But... But um, it, it is a, across the social spectrum. It should be like that. Like it's a, why are we doing it? You know, we're doing it for future generations. But we're doing it for having, like we were talking about, new, a new economy. You know, um, this other conference we were at. Um, you, you want a new a new world, really. Yeah. A new a new economy means uh, not just uh, growing your own vegetables and. Uh, little things like that, but but it is important too. That's doing that, but it's um, exploring all kinds of ways, eh? Yeah. Um, like the like I was saying, the savagery of capitalism. Look, there's some brilliant minds around that have been old ones, new ones, new economists um, talking about how you can tr how we can try and civilize that system, so it's not so savage, you know, and it doesn't appeal to the materialist in us, you know, somehow. There's all kinds of ways of doing it. I'm sorry, I haven't got a list. <laughs> but there is. It would be an enormous list if it was. Please join me in thanking Dr Mary Graham.